Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, everybody, it's Ledge. As you know, I am the managing partner and co-founder of Ad One Zero. Really excited to have another cool episode today with Asbed Cassis. He is the co-founder and CEO of Alina in Los Angeles. Asbed, I'm going to get you give a little intro to the business and yourself because I know you can do it better than me. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Asbed Cassis. I'm the CEO of Alina Solutions. We're a creative software development company slash product studio. And what we mean by that, a lot of times people go, what does product studio mean? So essentially all that means is we blend data, technology, design, and quite a bit of storytelling to create meaningful user experiences that fuel engagement and essentially convert attention to revenue. Right. That's in a nutshell (laughs) what we do. But essentially those digital experiences that we're talking about usually fall under one of three categories. They're either mobile applications, web applications, or e-commerce experiences. And, well, and I know they sound different, so when we talk, I'll tell you why we, how we landed on those three. But essentially, uh, those are the main categories of experiences that we build for our customers. As you mentioned, we are headquartered in Los Angeles. I'm calling you from LA right now, or we're speaking from LA. But uh, we're truly an international team. We have offices in Los Angeles, Yerevan, Armenia, and Manchester. We just started uh, operating out of Ukraine as well. We also have contractors in eight different countries. We've been around since 2016. Well, the business technically formed in 2016. Yeah. Uh, both my co-founder and I were actually employed at the time in other companies. So throughout 2017, we built up the business because both of us are family men. So we had we had responsibilities. I wish we could just jump, but we couldn't. But you know, essentially, the business grew to a point where at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, Uh, We jumped ship and we've been doing it full time since then. That's awesome. I mean, I think most of our audience can resonate in one way or another with the uh, build the business as the side hustle. And and that's a classic path for, you know, what a services business that is probably initially all built on uh, your work, your sweat equity, you know, your network, all those those things before it kind of becomes uh, you get that momentum you know, kind of behind it. And yeah, so talk about, you know, maybe that that journey a little bit. And I do want to dive into, you know, you have a thing that I, I totally relate to for your business and our businesses, you know, it's like, well, you're a marketing agency or well, you're a, you're a sales consultant or, hey, you're a dev shop, you know, mm-hmm. in your case, right? And, and you know, you do different things, but the, 
the idea of saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to differentiate from, you know, the million other people that do exactly. a thing that kind of looks and sounds similar, you know? So I, I want to dive into that a little bit, but yeah, you know, to, to walk me through the story and I'll, I'll interject where I, where I have interesting questions. Sure. I'll actually, it's a great point you're bringing about, you know, especially in these days, there's a lot of companies that do similar things. So maybe we start with the genesis of why we wanted to start this, because I feel like that's been a really good part of differentiator for us and something that helped us grow the business from, you know, two childhood friends that have known each other for 30 plus years to a fun business that we get to feel that we're making an impact on, on other businesses. So essentially, my last corporate job was at a Red Bull Media House. Prior to that, I had worked at uh, big companies like Warner Brothers and you know Lamps Plus, and also startups. And my my partner and my childhood friend, his name is Alex Nazar. I've known him since I was three. We've gone to school together, and we always talk about this. He's the more technical person, and we always felt that agency relationship. I don't want to say broken, but there was better ways to improve on it. We never felt that when we sat in our corporate jobs with the agencies that we're working with or the dev shops we're working with that we're really sitting on the same side of the table. It felt like us and them. And we thought there might be, there should be a better way to, to do this. So for us, it was ROI. We were kind of talking a little bit right before this call as we're getting to know each other that uh, the best way to prove your worth to anybody is to make them money. Because once you do that, it's easier for them to commit to other projects. And frankly, that's how the business grown. We've grown organically. 3x year over year since 2017. And the idea there has been having a, an absolute focus on ROI. So everything we do, we, we, we have not, you know, there are some agencies that do a great job with doing art projects, but that's not really our specialty. Our specialty is how do you convert attention to revenue? And for us, the and the proof is in the pudding, right? Uh, our, the digital experiences we've built so far, our team has built so far, have brought in over 1.39 billion with a B dollars in revenue to our customers. A lot of our uh, applications convert three to five times their industry average. And the absolute focus there is data. So my last job, as I mentioned, at Red Bull Media House was the lead of data. And I realized that we, it's not that we have a lack of data. We actually have too much data. And it's taking that data and creating insights out of it. And a lot of the executives we work with are running businesses. They have families. They have a million other things going on. And it's not fair for us to assume that they're going to sit down and, and look at the data. And then furthermore, get insights out of it where they have five other things going on. So the thing that differentiates us is we really sit down with you. And we try to understand and break down your growth formula. And once we do that, we, we build experiences that are absolutely focused on those, on those growth uh, aspects of your business. And we could talk more about that, but that in an essence is what has allowed us to kind of differentiate ourselves. We really don't have a cookie cutter approach. Even three e-commerce businesses that are, we're working with will have three different metrics. For, for example, with B2B, it's not necessarily how much web traffic you're getting, but how, what type of traffic it is, what the customer is doing, what the customer journey looks like. And, and so on and so forth. So that's how we try to differentiate ourselves. It's really sitting down, putting ourselves in your shoes. And that's frankly, one of the most fun parts of being a services industry. You get to solve different types of uh, problems and eventually realize there are common arc stories, there are common themes, but there are also very specific challenges that each company is working with. And lastly, it's been the fact that, you know, build it and they'll come is not true anymore. So a lot of the eight companies we work with already have an application, already have an e-commerce presence, already have uh, you know, a mobile app out there, but it's not doing what they expect it to do. So we want to understand what the user journey should look like and essentially reverse engineer success from that point on. 
And those are frankly some of the harder projects because if the product is already out there, we don't assume anybody before us was not smart. So obviously everybody's put their best effort forward. Why hasn't that worked? And how can we fuel your growth that way? Yeah, right. So, you know, what's interesting is like a lot of that stuff you just said is what we work on in sales and marketing too, you know? And so product I think is the bridge between technology, you know, building stuff, writing code, putting actual blocks together. And like, now what do we do with this thing? I can't tell you how many times, you know, we'll get prospective clients and honestly, there's nothing we can do for them. It's just like, I, I think you built a thing and it's beautiful, but nobody wants it. You know, <laughs> exactly. I can't, I can't materialize money for, for this, you know, and, and I'm sorry, but like, it would be disingenuous for me to take your money and try to sell this because I think nobody wants it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's tough when you drop the half a million dollars into building a thing. And I'm like, you know, this is beautiful, but it isn't useful, you know, no, yeah. and nobody wants it. I mean, you really are hitting a sensitive point here. Uh, I've, you're, you're, you're saying, frankly, unfortunately, I'm sure both of us have come across this situation more often than we'd like to admit, right? And, and we've thought a lot about this internally and externally. I've talked to pretty much everybody that I could talk to about this exact issue. There are some really smart people or very well-performing companies that we've come across who, like you said, have dropped 500,000, a million, sometimes even more on things that are just not working. And for us, one thing we've noticed is I'm sure you hear this all the time. I'm sure your audience does too. MVP, minimum viable product, minimum viable product. So everybody's thinking about minimum viable product, but unfortunately what a lot of minimum viable products miss is what's called the riskiest assumption test, RAP. If you understand the riskiest assumption in your hypothesis of why, like you said, people are going to want this, you better build something quickly before you commit, before you go all in to, you know, to, 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 to use a poker term, but you really want to make sure that you understand the riskiest assumption that you have in this hypothesis test for that. And once you get the results that you want, then go ahead and, and like you said, drop that additional, those additional resources, but you're absolutely right. And I think it's not even a technology issue. I've seen this happen in retail. I've seen this happen in other consulting businesses, people creating consulting businesses for problems that people simply don't care about yet. Yeah. And the yeah. keyword is yet, sometimes you're just ahead of the curve. So I don't want anybody listening to this to get discouraged. Sometimes, sometimes you truly are a little bit ahead of your time, but that's a, that's a problem too. You know, you better have some resources that allow you to survive till the curve catches up with your vision. Yeah. I'd say you're, you're right. And about the, we seem to have lost in the MVP thing and you like, you go back to the books, right? Like this is Steve Blank's thing and, you know, Eric Reese made it kind of popular, but people forget that, you know, read the whole book. Because, <laughs> because what this is really about is, and I have on the bookshelf, you know, the four steps, to the epiphany, which is like edition one of the wonky Steve blank, you know, stuff before it got all sexed up, you know, and it's boring and it's a textbook, but really what matters is the forget about what assumptions you're making, like have a hypothesis at all. Mm, this MVP true. has, has come to mean, wrongly that, you know, let us just put a piece of crap out in the market that is going to jam our idea down people's throat and then wonder why it doesn't work, you know? So be very careful about assumptions. And most of the time, the MVP is you going out with a piece of paper, you know? And so don't build anything, you know, test, 
what is that be forced into what is the hypothesis? Because if the hypothesis is a thing that you can't prove in anyone's brain, absolutely, you don't need to build technology to prove it. Well, that's actually where the industry is headed to uh, as well. I mean, one of the things you're mentioning is something we recommend often. It's called a clickable prototype, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is you've got this great vision, right? You believe a bunch of people, once they see this vision, are going to buy in. Well, luckily, in 2020, 2021, and moving forward, I mean, 20 years ago, you had to really build things in order for you to test them out. Even as far as 10, 15 years ago, I think that was the case. But nowadays, what we recommend often is don't write a single line of code yet, because that's really where a lot of the expenses are. Let's build you some screens. Let's connect them. For the end user, it's going to look like an actual product, and you can actually interact with it. Take that to your target audiences, test it out with them, and given the reaction you're getting, uh, let's make some changes. And essentially, you're, what that allows you to do is your actual V1 is not a V1. It's a V2, 3, sometimes 4. It's just that you've allowed time to ferment the idea, to test it out with customers. I'm always shocked how often we talk to people who are willing to commit a sizable you know, amount of resource to a project, and they have not talked to any of their end users. They have not done market research. They truly have not understood what the competition stands for. And, you know, that's, again, something that we help out with. Which is that's all marketing stuff. Yeah. 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 That, that's why a lot of our projects start with the discovery phase, because yeah. we want to make sure we're building the right thing. Yeah, we could build you whatever you want, but isn't it more fun to build something that you see, in the, you see it working? I mean, especially in tech, it's, as you know, it's a very competitive space for us to recruit, uh, you know, talented engineers and talented employees. And, and people don't want to work on projects that are going to stay on the shelf, right? People are, we have a sense of pride. You want to say, look, you want to point at something I and say, that thing. I yeah. built that thing. And so, and that's also better for the customer. And that's what I've kind of meant earlier when I said really being on the same side, the agency and the company are better off if the product is successful by all means. And, and one part where there is a bit of friction is when the product is truly successful. Sometimes that company has to absorb it internally and that's a step that we really enjoy for us. We call it sending the kids to college. A lot of times with the project, we actually get involved with the company to hire with them their own internal team to continue building this product. Because at that point, it becomes a core part of their business. And you know, we've every one of those engagements have ended up leading to either more recommendations or additional work. But there is an aspect of, you know, at some point the the engagement has to end and you have to hand it over to a team and literally help them hire the right team to continue managing and building. And we usually stay on as consultants, but you're absolutely right. We, you, need to, you need to take the paper, test it out with people, and then build out. And luckily, we live in an age where that's very doable and very affordable. Yeah, you touched on an important thing for all the... I'm sure we have a lot of service providers listening. We, we have a lot of listeners who are you know pure product SaaS and making 90% margin. So you know, God <laughs> bless you, but this, this particular point may not be for you. But anyone providing, you know, a consultative service or an outsourced service of any sort, uh, there is a palpable fear from the buyer, uh, founded or not, that you are trying to get your hooks into that business and we'll never be able to fire you because you're so important to us that, you know, like now we're going to have to pay you forever. And, you know, that I know that you see that from from dev and product side, we see it from sales. Like I, it's almost like, I don't want to outsource that thing. I have to build it inside. I've got to build a product team. I've got to hire devs, got to hire sales, marketing people, because if I let it go outside, you're going to have your hooks in me forever. And I'm going to have to pay you forever. And it's not good yeah. for my company. And that 
thing you the point you made about let's always lead with a way that make sure that you let the customer know that you can extract us. And in fact, we are working actively for your success to be so large that you do extract us. Uh, and here's how we're going to do that. So I know that our business leads with that. I learned that the hard way over time. It, that that's, yeah. a, that's a critical feature of a, of a service-based business. And it's a legitimate concern. I mean, I don't blame anybody for having that concern. I have that concern when I bring in companies to work with us, right? It's, uh, and, and frankly, sometimes we're never going to, you know, if, if it's not a core competency that we have, I don't believe that we're ever going to get rid of that service provider. If things are working, things are working. But you, like you said, it's a, it's a very legitimate concern and you have to have a way out. Sometimes the company might tell you, you know what, we're just not a tech company. We want you to continue uh, doing that. And then that's a decision that they've made and everybody feels good about it. But like you said, nobody wants to feel cornered into a decision or feel like they have to do it. That's not how you create, you know, high net promoter scores. <laughs> let's say yeah, so. Right, right. <laughs> right. So I know I mean, when we do it, we talk a lot about, you know, how do we, we document everything on their systems, their side, everything's on their stack. They own all the stuff. How do you guys do that from the product? you know, standpoint where to just to make sure that that they can take it over well, because there's a lot of tactical steps to that. Absolutely. I'm actually would love to come back and learn a little bit about how you do it as well, because that's, a you know, it's a very interesting, interesting point. So for us, it really starts with the simple stuff. So, for example, as simple as making sure that all the environments that we're using, whether it's AWS environments, hosting, whatever it is, those accounts should be your accounts as the customer. And this is something that I wanna make sure the audience hears. If any company, especially in the tech side, comes and says, let us own, and the worst one I've seen is analytics. Let's say, let us own your Google Analytics. Uh, you know, let us uh, own your hosting. Let us own or your, your domain registration. Or your domain, domain registration. <laughs> I mean, which is things. also like 20 years ago that was happening, but it still happens. It actually, terrible. it happens even more now than before, because frankly, I think a lot of businesses, especially the last year, have had to rush to this digital thing. I mean, 2020 was an interesting year for us. We just got bombarded with people that understood, oh my God, I need to have a digital way to interact with my customers. And a lot of them, because they had to were in a rush, they were not thinking of the details. I always tell people, including us, when you're signing a contract, assume everything is going to go bad. Do you have an extraction method? Do you have a way for you to get out? So for us, tactically speaking, it starts with that. Every single environment that we're building, every single thing that we're touching should be your account and we have access to it, not the other way around. And I will say that if you just do that as an audience, if, if, the, if you only take one thing from this conversation, Make sure, <laughs> I can't tell you how many horror stories. We're frankly dealing with this every, every month. We have one new project that we're working with where somebody can't get access to their domain because the other company you know, does not want to hand it over. Or there's some sort of a conflict where uh, it was never really clear in the contract who owned that part. It's your IP, so you got to protect your IP. And the first part of protecting your IP is making sure that you are in control. You actually own it. Yeah. You, you don't want to, yeah. you know, just put yourself in the shoes, right? You don't want to be in a situation where you change a service provider and you end up losing two years, three years of analytics, which unfortunately we had a customer deal with last year. And eventually it got resolved, but I'm sure nobody wanted to spend three and a half months and all the lawyer money that they spent to get mm -hmm. that information out, right? So it starts with that. And then the other part, it starts with you planning for success, right? So you say, what does success look like and I'm not talking about the vanity KPIs. I, I Frankly, everybody focuses on downloads. Everybody focuses on 
uh, web traffic. And there are ways for you to boost these numbers. I'm sure if you're trying to do a raise, there are ways for you to get those. But that is just not even the beginning of the game. I mean, when you look at mobile apps, more than 80% of the users that are using and download an app are not using it a month later. So uh, you're, are you constantly just going and getting downloads? But where's the engagement, right? So for us, we really do break that down. What does the success look like? What are the engagement metrics we're going to have to be looking at? And then what would the team have to look like? Again, with all the technology updates that have happened, you can actually build a lot more with a smaller team. So what we try to do is we try to keep the footprint as small as possible because it allows us to be nimble. It allows the customer to also be nimble. And then it starts with educating the customer from day one, right? So, and we don't call them customers. We intentionally call everybody work with partners. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it sounds cheesy, but if you start with that partnership, uh, you know, ideology from the beginning, you're much more likely to actually act like it. So we, we think what would success look like? What are the milestones we're going to have? And we get everything. So we say, till we hit XYZ, we're not going to move on to the next piece of this engagement. And that allows them to also be more prepared. So as you know, you've hit one milestone. It means, hey, you might want to hire an analyst because if you have any plans of having this in-house, you're going to need somebody that truly understands this on a gut level. And that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and then you realize, well, this is even going better than we expected. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's have QA also be on your side because now you're going to have in-house understanding of what are the traditional bugs that you're coming across, where, where's the friction. You said something earlier about MVPs. I mean, we always joke the best MVPs get, you know, it's, it's just an assumption. You're going to go and then the world is going to slap you and hopefully not a strong slap right. where you, you understand where you are. So it truly starts with that. Reverse engineer success and then understand that there are milestones to hit. Uh, unfortunately, in the industry, everybody has the now hero story. Everybody's an overnight success. And yep. it's very truly, I've never really seen overnight success. Even the Pokemon game, a few years ago, everybody was thinking about that Pokemon game, how in a month it became the main thing. But when I read up on it, it had been going on for years. It's just they've been tinkering it and certain technologies had to get there. The yeah. speed of the phones had to get there. But, you know, plan for success. And at the same time, assume nothing is going to work. And plan for patience because <laughs> exactly. the timing is probably wrong. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people that were, you know, ahead of the market. And, and as I don't want to say visionaries, but as people that are are of the ideation mindset, you know, we can see something and we go, oh, cool. When that's available, you know, I mean, I could tell a story that like, you know, I conceptualized Foursquare you know, the day that the iPhone came out, I didn't build it. You know, I, I didn't get any money. I didn't even, you know, but it was there, you know, it made sense. Location services is now a thing. What can you do with that? Exactly. And, you know, I think some people, you know, have, have the idea and can execute at the right time. And execution is, is really all about, and that's what data is and analysis and, you know, all the things that we're talking about, it's, it's ultimately you ought to write good code and you should develop good design and good product. Uh, but it's just like the halo around that is really what's going to make the difference. I think the execution of integrating all those functions into the business and frankly, making money, you you have to have a good revenue model. It That's the, really the only thing that matters. And we talk about revenue being that, you know, just the number one core value for our company, because that's what we do. We make people money, do yep. it and do it in a higher integrity way, but I just, there's no other thing that your business needs more than money. It's just air. 
I mean, the business, I mean, your business essentially providing oxygen for all the businesses that they're working with. I didn't pay him to say that folks, but that is absolutely true. So <laughs> but it, it, I, I mean, it, it, absolutely. Right. It's, it's the oxygen without revenue, the greatest, the greatest vision still needs execution. You actually said something earlier that I had read up a lot, but and I was like, Oh, that sounds right. But the more I've been alive, the, the more true it's become. I'll take a good idea with great execution over a great idea with good execution. Execution, execution, execution. It's it's mind-boggling how many businesses we've worked with that are printing money. And when you look at the idea, it's good, it's not great, but their execution has been so flawless and they truly understand their customer. I mean, people talk about emotional intelligence, but we're working with some founders that have truly <laughs> transformed themselves to be able to sit in the customer's shoes and 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 every idea that they have every decision they make they're not making from their point of view they're not making it from their from their ego or whatever you want to call it they're saying what would my customer want and i'm sure everybody asks themselves that question but i've noticed including myself it's very hard to truly put yourself in the shoes of somebody that that that's not you and then look at the world from that point of view but if you could do that and have a close to obsessive, uh, yeah. you know, focus on execution. You're much more likely to be successful than not. Yeah, absolutely. Because it wasn't your original idea. You just you executed based on what people actually needed, and you innovated a little bit around the edges. Exactly. And I think that's right. Uh, okay, so we sound we sound so smart, you and me, right? So like now, I I could tell a bunch of stories about the things that I completely screwed up to get to my massive level of wisdom right now. So uh, on, on your journey of, you know, sort of arriving at some of these wise points, what were some of the, you know, speed bumps, horrible assumptions, mistakes that you made? Because let's bring it down to earth. We're both founders and we blew things up along the way. So. Well, I'll say I've made more mistakes than not. And I've also not to sound cliche, but I've, you know, those have been the lessons that have helped out um, you know, in, in the, uh, in, in the future steps, frankly, bef- this is not the first business I've started. I, I started with an e-commerce business in 2002. Uh, the first business was a home run. So I thought I'm the best. There's nobody like me. And then life made sure to, you know, bring me down to earth. So I've, you know, made many, many other businesses or started other businesses that were not successful, but in each one of them, I always noticed that, like you said earlier, I truly did not understand the main hypothesis and I did not understand the components of, of, of the decision I was making, right? So, you know, you think of success and it sounds like a, a well-rounded word, but it, there's so many components to it. But I'll, uh, instead of telling you stories from the previous endeavors, I'll tell you a couple that we're solving right now. So they're very top of mind. Uh, the first one was, and we used to take, we still, I still take so much pride in it, but I've realized that I, I should have thought about this a bit earlier. So the business, I'm not a marketer, right? And frankly, I was, I do a lot of sales now, but I was not a salesperson. My background is technology. And then I went to business school because I really wanted to do product management. My, my, my true passion is product. And my CTO, who's the smartest person you'll meet, I guarantee you that he, you know, he's just a genius. He'll sit down and he'll technically tell you how to build everything. So my, the part of the business where I come in is I really like the product aspect of things. How do you take features and understand the market and so on and so forth, and then bring everything into play. So again, neither one of us came from a sales background, neither neither one of us came from a marketing background. The way we started the business was, I ended up reaching out to a bunch of people and I said, hey, um, you know, my buddy and I are starting 
a business, do you need any offshore uh, or any, actually it wasn't even offshore because a lot of the work that we do right now is not offshore. Uh, we, we do have an office, as I mentioned here in Los Angeles. A lot of our employees are based out of Austin. I should say contractors, not employees. A lot of our contractors are based out of Austin, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. But we reached out to people and the business did get started by somebody asking me, hey, do you know a team that could do Java for us? So I called my partner now and I said, hey, Alex, do you know any good Java teams? He said, no. I said, great, man. Say hi to your family and we'll talk later. And then five minutes later, I called him. I said, why don't we take this project? Do you know anybody? You know, do you have a team that we could put together? So that's how the business got started. And then I kept telling everybody in my network and then they brought us work. And then the people that they connected us to, luckily, were happy with the work. And then they end up providing us more leads, more work. They would recommend their neighbor, their best friend, and so on and so forth. So the first two and a half, three years, we're growing 3x year over year. We're not spending a single cent on advertising. You said something earlier. We're not spending a single cent on content, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not really where our mindset is. Our mindset is there's more work coming. And essentially, we really delayed doing two core competencies in the company. One, sales was very personal. So we really did not end up building a, a true sales channel that would scale outside of the few people and outside of the, the, the way we were operating. And the second one was that we really did not put enough attention to creating content that created inbound, right? So, because uh, the inbound we're getting was organic. And I, like I said, at some point we felt like we're the, it's the best thing in the world. And it really is. There's nothing like organic inbound. But it, it, when you can only do 3X so many times before you realize I'm going to plateau and you can't just create those competencies overnight. So essentially, you know, when they say sometimes your strength is your weakness, it absolutely was the case here. Uh, in the beginning of 2020, we noticed that, wow, all right, we don't have really a market I and mean, we've never done a paid marketing thing. Leveling right? Out, we, right? we plateaued yep. a bit. Now, COVID ended up being, and for some businesses, it was bad. For us, COVID actually gave us a big bump because everybody wanted their digital businesses, but um, but that's what was. So luckily, my wife, who's incredibly smart and has spent a lot of time in her career doing sales and marketing, uh, gracefully agreed to join us. And she has told us how many mistakes we've made. And now looking at all the things she's building, all the processes she's building, I understand that A, how much bigger we could have grown earlier. And B, these things can't happen overnight. I mean, you, yeah, you can throw money at certain problems. You know, you, maybe you can get four companies to help you create content. But even that content, you need to put content out, understand what's resonating with people and what's not. So essentially, I'd recommend that as, as your plane is taking off, I mean, not to sound again cliche, but you are building the plane as you're flying it, pay attention to the things that are not a problem just yet, because not that they're a problem, but if your goal is continued growth and there is something, you do get addicted to that, right? There is something very fun about seeing your team growing and having to change offices multiple times per year because the office is too small, but focus on your inbound, focus on your content and focus on your sales, especially if you don't come from a sales background. And again, I'm not saying this because I'm on a call with you, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not a salesperson. And as much as, as much as we can, I mean, I feel like every executive has to sell because if you're not selling, you don't understand what the, what the industry wants, what your customers want, what the, where the world is headed, but you know, you can't wing this thing. So in order for you to scale above and beyond your God-given natural abilities, you're going to need to have processes in place. And those processes take a while. So yeah. that's been, that's, you know, and I, I'm sure the business could have been even bigger than it is right now had I thought about this two and a half, three years ago. Yeah. And I think of that, uh, I see this all the time for a business that starts with uh, a couple of partners who have a good 
you know, I'll say it like the old old school way, you know, good Rolodex, we got friends, we get, we get partnerships and we get referrals. And so uh, what I tell people is like, you got to watch for this because partnerships and referrals as the core source or only channel of your revenue will peter out, you know, probably when you get to that million dollar services type of mark. And at that point, it's too late to have thought about building direct, you know, so you need to build direct along the way. So that partnership and referral thing is your backbone. Like that is how you start, but understand that that will run out. I've seen it a hundred times if I've seen it once, you know, so you have to really understand that, that you get to build on that foundation of your network. You do not get to grow based on on that. And so you need to figure out a way to get a, a real message out there and uh, have other people who are not your friends, who don't care, who found you organically, you know, and, and, and be able to sell them because you get a lot of grace from your friendlies who go, yeah, you know, I know a guy, so I'm just going to bring the business. They're not actually shopping. When people start shopping, it's a whole different story. So we often get brought in at that point and go, why did our sales flatten out? I go, you don't have any direct channel. Like that's why, you know, like we can help you close more of the the tiny amount of inbound that you have, but you first need to develop top of funnel inbound. And it's, uh, it's tremendously expensive. And uh, it's particularly people who think they're going to target big logos, you know? Oh yeah. Cause there's a line at the door. I've worked at big logos and there was literally a line at the door of people just trying to get in. Yeah. And you know, there's just so much time. And, and to your point, I mean, Right now, we've grown to 39 full-timers plus contractors. Once you grow to those numbers, you really do want to look at your funnel differently. Now, mm-hmm. in our case, like I said, we've been fortunate with certain you know, uh, conditions that have turned in our favor. But I honestly do stay up at night and think, what would have happened if, if we were in an industry that got hit, impacted negatively? You know? And you're not going to always get lucky. So... Uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Do luck favors the bald, but exactly, exactly. You you can't. Luck is a terrible. <laughs> you know, it's great when it works, but it's not. It's not a. It's not a competitive advantage. To say you, you know, you leverage know cuts both ways. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and people, um, you know, and this goes to your financial planning. You know, to, am I borrowing money? Am I? Do I have investors? Do I have? How many months of cash do I have in the bank? Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of contingency planning. We keep a Slack channel. Just my partner and I. We call it War Games. And we mm. think it was just like, think of awful things and share news stories of how things are terrible. And we just think about like, what would we do if that happened to our business? You know, are we prepared for that? So I think contingency planning can be almost like a fun exercise to stretch your brain, you know, when you get tired of doing some other stuff too. Absolutely. Uh, I have a question on what you said. So usually, you know, you said you, you obviously come into this situation often. What have mm-hmm. you seen as like the lowest hanging fruit that uh, helps companies working with you to, you know, get over that hump, especially early on, because some of this feels that it's a longer engagement. So what are some of the low hanging fruit that you've noticed that have a quick ROI? You can, even in a partner and referral based network that, you know, sort of like where that's the base of revenue. I often find that if I really query the founder, I say, you know, when was the last time you legitimately took 50 people out of your network and reached out to them for a conversation about what you do. And almost never is that the case. And they go, I don't know, you know, people just know what I do. I bet if you get on the phone <laughs> and you talk to all your prior customers 
and some people from your network who are your friendlies and just tell them, hey, I've got a little bit of capacity on the bench thinking about growing out some projects. You got anything in mind or you know anybody I should talk to? Right there, keep the founder busy for a couple of months and usually sell out the, the inventory. Then you take that money and I say, since you weren't going to do that anyway, and I just helped you do that, let's take that money and plow some of that into an outbound cold campaign at the top of the funnel and start building that messaging. Also, your packages are probably wrong, so you can probably raise your prices. And there's a, probably a, you know some other tweaks in your process that make your buying cycle too long. Those are the things that typically would be um, the initial you know attack factors when you're plateauing. Uh, you're just not basically not paying attention to all the stuff that the assets you have right in front of your face, you have been lulled out, you know, of because of, uh, you're running a company. And I, I sincerely think that, yeah, you're right, that executives and founders should always be involved in some cases, but I think you should only be involved in the whale clients. So mm-hmm. how yeah. are you how are you working to build systems, processes, operations, and all the things to actually make a revenue function that bring in the 80%? you know, not the 20%, go ahead and work on the 20%. You needed an executive assist when you're closing Red Bull or some huge, you know, client, they want, they're going to want to talk to you. Uh, But it's a complete waste of your time to be on the phone, you know, doing the initial calls with people who can't afford to even touch your service, you know, so you're going to have to bifurcate your time. And most founder sellers are not properly doing that. So we often get into the, uh, you know, the difficult discussion of how to manage your schedule and your time too. <laughs> I'm actually smiling ear to ear as you're saying this. When my wife joined us, uh, one of the first things she uh, she instituted in the company was what's called, well, at least with me, was called OSPET 7. And the idea with OSPET 7 was every week, you're going to pick seven people because, you know, you can read, you can talk to seven people. I don't care how busy you are. That was her mm-hmm. point. Talk to seven additional new people a week. And uh, initially, we laughed at it. I was like, what do you mean OSPED 7? And it ended up being, to your point, one of the, a very interesting a- approach and also made me realize that, you know, the network uh, was even f- uh, richer than I expected. I don't mean rich from a, financially, but just the amount of people that people, the amount of other people everybody's connected to. That last part when you said, who else do you think would need my services? I can't tell you how often I've been shocked by who they would come up with because they're not people I would think of. And sometimes I go like, why didn't I think of this company or that company? But people think differently. So you're, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And um, the, the calling seven additional people a week and doing it consistently, even on the weeks that you don't feel like it yep. has, has been a game changer. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And listen to that, everybody. Seven people. This is not doing a hundred cold calls or any of this miserableness. You can pay other people to do that. Sometimes you should, sometimes you shouldn't. There are good strategies to use at different times. So yeah, I love, I love that tip. Um, sorry. So give us, give us a minute or two about like what's on your mind for, you know, the future We're we're exiting pandemic world, maybe things, you know, become interesting and different in product space. You know, what, what are the trends? What are you seeing for, for the space in general? Sure. So, and as I mentioned earlier, in the span of few months last year, specifically e-commerce ended up moving five years ahead. And this is not just numbers I'm coming up with, but these are the actual numbers that we that, that the industry is noticing. And I feel that during the pandemic, there are some behavioral changes that have happened, and uh, some will stick, others won't. But there is a subset of audiences that have been introduced to digital interactions with companies that's not going to go away. And I'll give you a very quick example. My mom is not very technically savvy. She's a very smart lady, but not necessarily the most technical person. 
And she always liked uh, picking up her food in person. And one of the places she likes is Panda Express. That's her guilty pleasure. And during the pandemic, I kept telling my mom, if you feel like having a Panda Express, why don't you just use this app? Look how easy it is. You could actually pick the size that you want. And she reluctantly agreed the first time, but then she realized my order is more right this way. I don't have to wait. Uh, it's actually a better experience for me. And we've been joking that I said, mom, once, once the pandemic is over, are you standing in lines again? And she said, no, I'm, I'm done. I actually like this. So all this to say, I believe that we've accelerated five years in the span of a few months last year when it comes to digital adoption of online shopping or at least online interactions with your brand. And a part of that is going to stick. So I think we've just crossed uh, a chasm that we're not coming back from. Uh, not to say that retail, I, I absolutely believe people are absolutely hungry to interact with people. Yeah. I know I am. I never want to go shopping and I want to go shopping now because <laughs> I want to talk to people. I want to see people. So I think uh, the, the news of retail, physical retail being dead are overblown. But I think the acceleration of digital shopping has just absolutely taken off. So I think from overall, your, uh, for each industry, for each business going to be different. But I would say, take a close look on how your customer's behavior has changed. Even your sales cycles have changed because of uh, the pandemic. Some things are going to stick even when the world opens up. But as far as the industry, I feel like this truly is the year of no code. Um, uh, there are so many, over the years, every year we say, oh, there is no code, no code. But there's so many tools right now. I have friends that have never written a single line of code that have been able to put out apps out there that are beautifully done, Granted, they might not scale once they're successful, but that's the whole point we're making earlier. You don't have to commit the pot just to test out an idea. So I think that's where the industry is headed. It's a lot more experimentation as well. Uh, I know we have a, a growth hacking service that we offer, and uh, we've been able to do experiments now that 10 years ago, even big companies that, that I worked at, we just could not experiment quickly. Now you've got the ability to put up quick experiments, let the data speak, and let the software tell you, <laughs> do you go right or left? You don't have to be into statistics anymore to truly understand the results of the experiments that you're getting. So, you know, a shift in consumer behavior, specifically as it pertains to shopping, a heavier emphasis on no code applications. And lastly, uh, the ability to actually truly create meaningful experiments and tests that answers questions for you quicker. You're going to still get to that answer, but instead of getting to it, in Q4 of this year, what would happen to your business if you got to that answer in Q2? What would the rest of your year look like? And I believe we're going to see uh, a big expansion when it comes to those type of things. I love it. Ending ending with the call to action and the rhetorical question that makes them want more. You you are a salesman. There you go. So, <laughs> uh, Asped, that's awesome, man. Thank you for the, the insights. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you and Alina Solutions, what's the best way to do that? So the best, uh, our website is www.alinasolutions.com. And you can reach out to me anytime you want. Asbed, A-S-B-E-D at alinasolutions.com. Awesome. Hey, thanks for spending time with us, man. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. It. I truly enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me and let's stay in touch. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.